Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to our audience of inquisitive individuals. We've been doing this Creation, Myth, or Miracle broadcast on a daily basis in the Boston radio audience for the past year, but we'll now be taking a break from doing a daily show, and instead we'll be featured a couple of times per month on the two-hour One Nation Under God broadcast that's on at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be joining with Dan Zimmerly as he asks questions about the current state of apologetics. So this discussion will continue just in a different venue. The Creation Myth or Miracle website will continue, as will the podcast. So if you've been listening to those, those are going to continue more likely on a weekly or so basis rather than the current daily basis. Also, the podcast will now have the freedom to be shorter than a 25-minute show or occasionally longer than a 25-minute show as the material dictates. So we'll have a bit more flexibility in how we do our podcasts. And you can find the link to subscribe to the podcast at the Creation Myth or Miracle website. It is also now on iTunes, so you should be able to find it by searching there. As I've mentioned previously, I'm very fortunate to get the opportunity to talk to some very intelligent and nice scientists that are involved in medical research primarily. And the folks I'm talking to are certainly not creationists. They are generally atheists, materialists raised in a culture like that, and well-educated in natural science. But they're open-minded enough to at least be curious as to why in the world would anybody believe the biblical account of history might be true. And so we have some interesting discussions. One young man I've been talking to very recently is educated in physics, genetics, and neurology, and is currently doing neurological research at a major institution here. So he's got a background to talk about most of the major issues related to origins. And I very recently made a distinction between two different types of claims that are out there in our culture, cultures all around the world for that matter, one of which I maintain is false, the second of which is accurate. Now, the one I maintain is false is the one that is absolutely ubiquitous, and it's this statement, science has proven biblical creation false. That statement, formed one way or another, is all over the place, and in fact, according to many bloggers and people out there in the blogosphere, anybody who disbelieves that claim is simply ignorant. But I want us to consider what does it take for that claim to be true. Once again, the claim is, science has proven biblical creation false. For that claim to be true, that would mean science must have a model of origins that explains the observations we have so well that it is effectively proven. And furthermore, that model must rule out the biblical creation account. Now, just to demonstrate that I'm not making this up, that this claim really is out there, again, the statement is, science has proven biblical creation false, consider the following. This is being taken from Dr. John Hartnett's book, Dismantling the Big Bang, and I'll include this in my blog with the references so you can look it up and read it in context Follow the footnotes and read the originals for yourself. But let's go ahead here. Theoretical astrophysicist Professor Stephen Hawking of Cambridge University 
in his best-selling book, A Brief History of Time, claimed that his Big Bang Theory was, quote, in agreement with all the observational evidence that we have today. In the introduction to that book, one of America's leading astrophysicists of the day, the late Professor Carl Sagan of Cornell University said, quote, This book is also about God, or perhaps about the absence of God, a universe with no edge in space and no beginning or end in time, and nothing for a creator to do. So there you have it. Science understands how everything came to be. This model matches all the observations we have, and it completely rules out the creator God. Okay, but wait, there's more. You know, we keep saying on this show the devil's in the details, so consider the following, which is also in Hartnett's book. Now, the casual reader might reasonably conclude from this that Hawking's Big Bang Theory explained the origin of the universe. In Hawking's own words, it agreed with all the evidence. That is, it explained everything. And Professor Sagan clearly understood this to be Hawking's meaning, as he said it left nothing for a creator to do. It had all been explained with physics. Surprisingly, this is not the case. A few sentences after Professor Hawking claimed that his Big Bang Theory had explained all the evidence, he admitted that among the few remaining unanswered questions was the question of the origin of the stars and galaxies. And there's an appropriate little cartoon with this little cloud saying, I can explain the origin of the universe no problem. It's just the origin of the stars and galaxies that I'm having trouble with. So you as a thinking individual, and especially if you're a skeptic, keep in mind that well-known scientists will go a bit overboard with their hyperbole in claiming that their models explain everything, when they themselves, in the details of their articles and books, point out that is absolutely not the case. There are many unanswered questions. Hence, what I maintain is an accurate claim. Science has multiple tentative models, each of which matches some of the observations, and some of these models do not match the biblical six-day creation. By the way, I say some of these models because there are creationist cosmologists that have published their own models, which do match biblical creation. On this episode, we're contrasting two different claims. The claim that is out there in our culture that science has proven the biblical creation false, period, versus my, what I believe is an accurate statement, that science has multiple tentative models, each of which matches some of the observations, and some of these models do not match the biblical six-day creation. Very, very different statement. And in order to illustrate what I'm talking about, let's walk through the basic stages of the overall Big Bang model as it's usually presented. Now, why did I say as it's usually presented? That's because there's actually several different versions of the Big Bang model, people tweaking things here and there in various ways because there is no single version that actually matches all the observations. They've all got problems, and so various physicists tweak various tuning knobs and attempt to resolve the issues. But let's look at the basic overall model as it's usually presented, just to give you an idea of what is involved here. What is it that is claimed to have occurred? 
And once again, I'm using Dr. John Hartnett's book, Dismantling the Big Bang. He explains the main events in the Big Bang model as follows, and he's taking this from Joseph Silk's book and other sources. The initial stage, which he calls stage A, is essentially an unknown region. This is that singularity. This is that cosmic egg where all the matter, energy, space, and time of the universe is somehow contained in an infinitesimal small point of infinite temperature and density, which then explodes, if you will. Nobody has a clue how any of this is supposed to have happened, and in fact it is claimed that it isn't even scientific to ask how it happened, because the laws of physics break down prior to Planck's time, that's 10 to the minus 43 seconds, and so we can't even theoretically discuss what occurs at the very origin, at time zero, if you will. Now, there's many attempts to avoid this singularity, but there's many other scientists, such as Silk himself, who say it's impossible to avoid it if you use any kind of reasonable assumptions at all. Divert just slightly here, one of the current approaches to get around these issues is just claim it's a multiverse. There's an infinite number of universes, and hence, no matter how improbable things are, it could have happened. That's another entirely fallacious, non-scientific argument, but that's not the subject for today's show. So stage A is an unknown stage in which everything starts. The cosmic egg explodes. By the way, Isaac Asimov, the atheist scientist, referred to it as a cosmic egg. That's not my term. Of course, he also said, I suppose it was laid by the cosmic chicken. But after that, very quickly, you have energy producing subatomic particles. And at this point, physics can begin to describe what is going on. And it's after that Planck's time I mentioned a moment ago, 10 to the minus 43 seconds, a very small period of time. After that, you get subatomic particles beginning to form out of energy. Then they claim that at 10 to the minus 36 seconds, something very startling happens. The universe suddenly undergoes a near instantaneous inflation by a thousand billion, billion, billion times. It appears the Big Bang was not enough. Another bang was needed, which accelerated an unimaginable process. Remember, we don't understand what's going on in stage A at all, into an unimaginably unimaginable process. Now, the purpose of this inflationary epoch is to make sure that everything is thoroughly homogenized. Everything's mixed together. You have thermal equilibrium. It's all the same temperature, and that's absolutely necessary in order to maintain the interpretation of the cosmic microwave background radiation as the remnant of this original energy radiation. The CMBR is amazingly smooth, and so you have to mix this all very thoroughly early on. It wouldn't happen by itself. Things would be chaotic, and hence this one-time thing called inflation was hypothesized to resolve these problems. For some more details, see our recent show at our website titled, What's Inflation Got to Do With It? But back to the story. Once inflation is over and the temperature begins to drop, the more exotic subatomic particles, such as quarks, begin to produce the more familiar ones, such as protons and neutrons. Then we exit stage B and get to stage C, and this is the period during which ordinary atomic matter begins to form. By about one second after the Big Bang, and that inflation period, stable atomic nuclei develop. They're mostly nuclei of hydrogen, small amounts of helium, and even some lithium and deuterium. 
But at this stage, you don't really have any complete atoms because as soon as you form electrons, they get ripped away from the nuclei and you really have this fog of radiation. And for the next 100,000 years or so as the expansion continues, then the temperature drops and finally electrons begin to match up with the protons so that you get actual normal atomic structures being developed. Then we finally have atoms. And now we get to stage D, the radiation fog clears from about 300,000 years onward, and the universe is now a transparent mass of expanding hydrogen gas and lesser amounts of helium and traces of lithium and deuterium. The power of the Big Bang fades out at this point. Up until now, everything's been driven by the transformation of energy into matter caused by the initial explosion and inflation of the primordial singularity. The momentum of the expansion will continue and the faint glow of the intense radiation will remain as that cosmic microwave background radiation. But really, the Big Bang's done all it can do. But all we've got is a cloud of expanding gas. Back in one moment. On this show, we're examining that claim that science has proven how origins occurs and proven the biblical creation account is false. But we're looking at what science really has, which is multi-stage models with many, many details, and the fact that despite the hyperbolic claims of scientists, they do not match all the observational details. And we're walking through the various stages in how we're told the universe came to be the way it is, that is the standard Big Bang model. And we just finished the stage in which we now have an expanding cloud of gas and the Big Bang is really just coasting along now. And so we enter stage E. And this is when you begin to get structure in the universe. That is, stars and galaxies. After all, what do we observe when we look out at the universe? We observe primarily stars and galaxies, don't we? And the radiation that comes from them. We also observe this cosmic microwave background radiation, which is assumed to be the leftover glow of the Big Bang. But certainly, stars and galaxies make up a great deal of our observations. And remember, early in the show, we mentioned how Hawking first claimed the Big Bang model matched all the observations, and then, rather quickly, admitted, except we don't know how stars and galaxies form. Those are unanswered questions. So no, it doesn't match all the observations. In fact, it doesn't match most of the observations, because stars and galaxies are precisely what we do observe. So during this stage, you've got this hot, expanding mass of gas. But something has to happen to make it stop expanding and begin to collapse. And of course, once it begins to collapse, something else has to happen to keep it from disappearing back into a singularity. These raise several detailed issues. And I've had a particular interest in how in the world were the very first stars formed. I've been looking for an answer for that for well over 35 years now. There is still no answer. I just recently read very recent reports from some of the experts in this area, and it seems that the best anybody can do is to simply say, well, we know gas won't collapse on its own. A cloud of gas simply does not become gravitationally bound and collapse. So what happens? How do we get the first stars? They seem to be saying in somewhat vague ways, there happen to be these fortuitously placed many halos of dark matter, dark matter meaning we have no idea what it is, we have no explanation for where it came from, but it's there, 
and it's positioned just right to supply the necessary gravitational pull to counteract the known physics of how a gas behaves and cause this expanding gas to begin to contract into regions of high enough density to finally become gravitationally bound. Now, given that we have no observational evidence at all for dark matter despite decades of looking for it, this is rather hypothetical. This is anything but laboratory science where we can do repeatable experiments. Pure conjecture. Magic stuff called dark matter happens to be perfectly positioned to allow these stars to form in the first place. That's not a scientific answer. That's a materialistic answer because something must have happened, and we know there's no creator to do it, but that's not really a scientific answer because I can't test it. Hence my claim the models do not match all of the observations. That is, they only match some of the observations. But to finish out the scenario of the Big Bang, once you do get these first stars to form somehow, these stars are supposed to be what produces all of the heavy elements through nuclear fusion within their cores. And then these stars explode and spew those elements all over the universe. That's where we get everything beyond lithium. And then you get a second series of stars, a second generation, if you will, and even third generations. Stars now can form and contain metals, which are what astronomers call the heavy elements. So now we've got stuff floating around in the universe, and we get to things like the nebular hypothesis and the derivatives of that that attempt to explain how the solar system then comes into being. It isn't good enough to explain stars. It isn't good enough to explain galaxies, both of which are unsolved problems at this point. We've discussed that many times on this show. But you also have to explain planets. And in particular, you need to explain our solar system. And the theory I was taught in school, the nebular hypothesis, is flat wrong. It never really adequately explained our own solar system, and we've discussed that. Look for the Spike Saris commentaries and go to his website, creationastronomy.com, and get his DVDs. He does a great job of showing you what you aren't being told about our solar system. But the problem has gotten way worse with our detections of exoplanets, that is, planets outside our solar system. They completely defy the model for planetary formation that everybody's being taught. And you can find articles all over the science news, very recently in fact, that flat say we don't have a clue how planets form. So do we have a model that explains all observations proving the Bible false? Absolutely not. But let's go on with the story. Let's say we've got stars, galaxies, a universe, a solar system, and Earth. You know, all the other structures in the solar system that protect the Earth such as our moon, but we still got dead stuff. Now you have to get life from atomic matter. How does that happen? Or molecular matter. Certainly you could have molecules. We're back to that origin of life issue. We've discussed that many times. There is no known solution. There's no working model at all that provides a naturalistic explanation for the origin of life. It's really a matter of faith when somebody says they believe it happened because they certainly can't point to any kind of detailed scientific model that shows how it could happen. But let's assume you've got life, and we'll pick it up from there. In our evaluation of the claim that science explains everything we see and has proven the biblical account of creation false, 
we've been very quickly walking through the standard mainstream explanation of origins. We're up to the point where we've got a universe, stars, galaxies, solar system, Earth, and life. Well, the initial life was supposed to be single cells, right? Then we have to get from there to everything that we observe once again, including humans and every other living thing on this planet. So now we're into the realm of evolution. And we've talked a great deal about that. There are many models of evolution, and there's a growing admission that the standard consensus model of neo-Darwinism, that is, unguided random mutations plus natural selection, is completely insufficient to explain what we observe. And hence, there are a growing set of non-Darwinian evolutionary models. We've talked about the Altenberg 16, for example. You can find a lot of information about this at our website and pointers to elsewhere for a great deal of details. Think for yourself. Let's try to wrap this up. We've been evaluating the ubiquitous claim, science has proven biblical creation false, which has to mean that science has a fully functioning model of how origins works, how everything came to be, and that model is true. It's proven. That's the only way you can prove biblical creation is false, and we've shown where various scientists like Hawking's have made such statements, first claiming the Big Bang matches all observations, and then admitting that the formation of stars and galaxies are unsolved problems. And you've got many very public evolutionists like Richard Dawkins claiming that neo-Darwinian evolution absolutely explains everything, and you've got to be a buffoon to question it. But then you have scientists, many evolutionary scientists, pointing out massive problems with that story. For example, Dr. James Tour, who's an expert in the formation of synthetic molecules, a chemist, who says, I don't understand how evolution works, and nobody can explain it to me. And he claims he has asked winners of the Nobel Prize, other scientific award winners, and nobody can explain it to him. And in private discussions, they admit they don't know how it works. Take a look at my blog and listen to the podcast titled Students Told Evolution of Fact While Experts Don't Understand Evolution. So you've got various expert scientists claiming there are problems with the standard story. You have hundreds of scientists who have signed the scientific dissent from Darwinism, saying that neo-Darwinian evolution is insufficient to explain what we see. So why is it the public keeps getting told it does explain everything. And as I've mentioned before, I used to be an evolutionist. I am no longer because I know too much about it. When I see what is claimed to be evidence for evolution, I keep wanting to say, ah, oh, come on, show me the real evidence. You have to be joking with what you just told me. You know better. And so I maintain that the claim, science has proven biblical creation false, is itself a false claim. What should be stated, what would be accurate, is this statement. Science has multiple tentative models, each of which matches some of the observations. And some of these models do not match biblical six-day creation. That is a true statement. And so, the point I want to make to you, the intelligent, skeptical individual, is the following. Use your brain and think for yourself. Look past the provably false statements that are made to the public, look for the details. 
and that approach applies whether you're listening to an evolutionary atheist scientist or a preacher in the pulpit. I started off this episode describing the conversations I get to have with well-educated but open-minded scientists, and I'm very grateful for those those opportunities. And as you can see, I want them to understand the true nature of the evidence and what it truly is able to prove. The fact is, nobody has a complete, accurate model within scientific terms that explains everything we see. No evolutionist, nor any creationist. But there is certainly no proof that the biblical account must be false. When you look closely, you find the details are consistent with the biblical account of creation, even if we can't prove it scientifically. SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com